0: Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. Today's episode consists of two interviews. The first is with Matt Webb from Jackalope Live Action Studios, and we're talking about the Mage Noir LARP that's going to be run in Austin, Texas this spring or summer. If you're not interested in LARPing or hearing about the world of Mage immediately after World War II, skip ahead about 20 minutes and 30 seconds to listen to our interview with Rich Thomas about how art influenced Mage and how Mage influenced its art. Thanks! Hello, Mage fans, this is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast with a Mage the Podcast mini-sode talking with friend of the show, Matt Webb from Jackalope Live Action Studios, and he is here to talk about his Mage Noir LARP. Matt, how you doing?
1: Fine. Friend, nemesis, sworn blood foe. The important part is there's respect, (laughs) and that
0: is key in both friendship and a nemesis. So (laughs) what is this production that Jackalope Live Action Studios is doing?
1: So we talked earlier about the Mage Eclipse setting, and one of the things we've discovered is that while I really liked where we are going with it, and I think it had a lot of potential, it was very ambitious to do a complete rewrite of the Mage setting for modern day and kind of do M5's heavy lifting before M5's been r- written. And I really wanted to do, as a smaller, more limited scope, more intimate sort of experience, I wanted to do a Mage LARP. And I just had the idea, I've always been a massive fan of the noir setting and the uh, 30s and 40s as a setting for magic. It goes back to my love of Call of Cthulhu, but also I think I can trace most of my passion for both that setting and for Mage to a slightly obscure little uh, film called uh, Cast a Deadly Spell. It was a film by, uh, it was set in 1947, 1946, and it followed the private investigator Howard Lovecraft as he dealt with magic and skullduggery in the underworld of Los Angeles in the 1940s. And it was a fantastic little HBO made for television production that slammed together the hard-boiled detective genre and really hokey pop or pulp magic.
0: So we don't have a lot of experience with boutique or blockbuster Mage LARPs, uh, since almost none of us are familiar with it, uh, what, do, what is the sales pitch for this?
1: So you get to have a very concentrated one-shot experience with characters that are built by the writing staff to interconnect with the other players. You have character workshops and integration with other other players, and you get to play a knight set in locations and exploring the ideas of mage in the immediate post-war period of America and all the potential and all the tragedies of that era. And you get to do it in where we rent out. I have a lovely wine bar that has this kind of very classic sort of motif layout to it. And we're going to rent it out, and that's going to be transformed in subtle little ways to a bar in 1946 that is inhabited by Groups of Awakened and the direct fallout of War Two. This sounds fascinating. So
0: I register, I get selected to participate, I pays my fee, do I need to have a costume?
1: Uh, Costume is definitely encouraged. I mean, but 1940s is easy to costume, especially if it's a simple fact that men just have an easier time with this because suits are suits for the most part, and no one's going to get on you for a three button versus two button. But, you know, also that's part of the fun. Part of the fun is to dress up like, you know, in that classic noir style, right? You know, you get the, the very classy look, the fedora, Maltese, Falcons sort of thing going on. And you get to play that sort of very stylish sort of idea of America in the forties. One of the great things about noir is that, and someone pointed this out to me once and it never left me is that noir is not set in America. It is set in the idea of America.
0: In the same way that they came from beneath the sea is set in
1: the idea of the idyllic fifties. Right. Or that, gotham is the idea of the american city kind yep. of composited in the same way metropolis is just in different ways it is it, the dream of america that you're inhabiting versus the nightmare in some cases yeah so if i am interested in this which i am what should i do you should go and you should find the mage Noir facebook group which is probably gonna be linked by this lovely podcast join it and also find there's going to be advertisements on the jackalope page as of tomorrow That are going to point you to our and on our Twitter, they're going to point you to a form in which you you it's called a casting call is what we're calling it. And you fill out a questionnaire. You say when you're available, what kinds of things you're interested in playing. And we will take the people who have signed up. We will select 30 to 40 entries from them. And we will offer you a spot. And if you are offered a spot and you take it, you pay for your ticket and you come to Austin at the date that we hit upon, which is going to be between April and June next year. And you come to Austin and you get to play out probably about six to 12 hours, uh, 12 hours probably total, including character workshops and so forth. And you get to explore a mage or mage adjacent character in 1946 and also uh, philip Ricado has agreed to uh, advise and and be a consultant on the project i was funded so he's going to be our our lore consultant and give his input on what is actually a very engaging and kind of very interesting and fluid era for mage that was not really explored in and of itself in the world of darkness books and i'm beginning to think that was kind of a loss if you look at the history of what's building up if you look at 1946 as a slice of the maze the ascension universe yeah we are fresh
0: off the heels meta plot wise of the technocracy and the traditions cooperating to wipe out the nefandi in western europe the awakening of garul the loss of uh charon from the underworld it is still the council of the eight mystical traditions the virtual adepts haven't left ships yet.
1: But they have already, as of, uh, 1935, they have, uh, realized that the new world order is not to be trusted. They Mm -hmm. have, they, uh, realized the new world order intended the stock market crash and the rise of Germany to, to happen. And here's the important thing to note. The technocracy did not officially turn on Hitler and take their patronage away from him until the early, early 1944, Mm -hmm. where it was practically meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, he was but largely British already
0: li- living in a bunker, mostly, uh, pr- running on methamphetamines.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. And they did, they, ref- the new world order refused to accept that the realities of the Nazi regime, both from the, the Nafandi and so forth, and also just the, the grim realities, which white wolf clarified many, many times. There is no supernatural force that is responsible for the Holocaust. There is no greater monster than man in the world of darkness. So, but even they were in denial about it because they, they believed that the dream that the fascists gave of a highly efficient society rather than face the reality of it, which is a, an interesting s- story to explore. How do you justify that level of intellectual failure?
0: And also, it's one of those cases where the traditions certainly don't have their hands clean. We have canon examples of Verbena members who also back the Axis powers, as well as a a few others whose sympathy slide there. So, once again, no one quite has clean hands. Mm
1: -hmm. And a lot of people, you have that very post-war sort of thing where you have people who can honestly say they didn't realize or they didn't fully appreciate the scope of what was going on. But they still have to come to terms with the uh, much like the German people or various, you know, members of American and British culture who back the wrong horse in a really big way that you can argue from the perspective of history that you could all well, hindsight is twenty twenty. But at the same time, you always have to look at yourself and say, what led me to that far astray? And can you redeem yourself from that point? So there's all these great questions. And you also have the virtual adepts are. Very much a fifth column inside the technocracy at this point. They are official doubters. They have been supporting the Allies under the table through breaking the Enigma. The virtual adepts helped crack and attack uh, German and Japanese correspondences. The virtual adepts actually conspired against the technocracy's wishes to scramble U.S. intelligence to prevent them from the uh, Pearl Harbor attack from being stopped Hmm. in order to draw the United States into the war, according to the second edition virtual adepts tradition book.
0: So this is a case where a character will be provided for you. If I have never LARPed before, is this an acceptable place to learn?
1: Absolutely. Uh, We're going to be doing a consent-based game. And Jackalop kind of has a reputation for being people's first LARPs. Uh, 20% of our players the Night in Question, which was our Vampire the Masquerade experience we ran this November, 20% of them were first-time LARPers, and they reported that they had a wonderful experience. It's very easy to learn, it's very free-form, and it's very engaging. And I think it's a great place to learn, especially if you're a Mage fan. In fact, I'd love people who'd never LARPed who are Mage fans to come play, and I'd rather, I would like LARPers who've never done Mage the Ascension to come play, because I think that's a great cross-pollination.
0: Now, we are mage fans, and statistically, we are uh, programmers that have some sort of anxiety condition. I have (laughs) never LARPed before. Uh, What are some of the mechanisms you have in place to keep this a, a safe and enjoyable environment?
1: Well, one of the things we have various uh, safety techniques that allow you to cut from scenes, allow you to negotiate. And one of our biggest concepts, we have our overall motto of our uh, studio is people are more important than LARP. So we don't want you to be doing anything you're uncomfortable with. We encourage people to care about each other and communicate with each other when you get into intense emotional scenes. In LARP, we talk about something called bleed, which is when my character is being shouted at, and I start getting anxious. I am not acting anxious; I am actually getting anxious, and that's called bleed, where the character's emotions bleed into my own. And it takes a lot of forms. I feel, let's say, uh, you know, more positive or, or sort of example is I, get, me, and another character have a romantic tie, and exploring a romantic tie, we start feeling feelings for each other, and that's bleed between emotions. And people are we t- teach people to be aware of bleed to be cautious of it, to make sure that you check in with people. We have various techniques, like there's something called the okay check-in, which has become pretty standard in American and uh, Nordic LARP. Nordic is so named because it's very common in Denmark and uh, Sweden where a lot of these more free-form, less rules-heavy LARPs have become been dominant for many, many years. The okay check-in is you flash the okay sign to someone and there's responses of like thumbs up, thumbs down, and shake your hands. And what that means is, are you actually crying or are you just a good actor? But mm. I don't want to interrupt the flow of the scene, but I want to have a moment and I want to make sure that you are okay because I care about you, Terry, more than I care about how cool the scene is. Mm. And that's the mentality that we encourage. And I, a lot of people who are nervous or have social anxiety have often found that LARPing, especially in an environment that feels safe and, and enriching, actually helps a lot with that. A lot gives them gives them uh, another thing we talk about in Larp. There's something called Larp theory, which is crazy. But in Larp theory, they talk about alibi. and alibi has a lot of aspects, good and bad, you know, but ultimately it means is that I can do things and I can kind of say that was my character but I can also risk doing embarrassing things because I have the alibi of me doing it in character. So if I fumble the speech in front of people, I can say, it's my character being nervous and it doesn't Mm. reflect upon me. It kind of gives a shield to the ego, but it's good training.
0: Interesting. Now you said this is going to be 12 hours and it's only going to cost $60. If I'm in the area and that is still too much for me, are there any mechanisms to
1: reduce that cost? So we have a scholarship program. What it is is that if you fill out the form, it's going to ask you: Are you? It asks you three questions. Can you just pay the ticket price? Can you pay the ticket price, and would you like to donate to defraying costs, or would you like to be eligible for financial assistance? In the most simple, and then it asks you, if you say, you know, it's much like getting a scholarship for school. You say, you know, why do you need the help? You know, are you just as cheapskate? Probably not. You know, you're a college student, but you think it's really cool. You just don't have $60 to spare, and you can't spend $150 a night, a night on a hotel room or so on and so forth. And if players will want to give 50 bucks here, 20 bucks here, whatever, we will have a small fund that we put aside where we say, okay, let's say you want to fly from Cincinnati. You want to come play. We will give you $200 and a free ticket right mm-hmm. and the studio will you know absorb the rental costs and so forth that go along with that game with the game for you and uh, other players have the opportunity to help people and the people who will be prioritized for that will be people with lower or limited income uh, younger people who and people who are from underrepresented demographics in the LARP community and in the mage community. So
0: So are there any mechanisms in place to prevent this event from just being 60 white men?
1: Right. Well, that's why we're doing the casting call is because I want a variety of different perspectives, a variety of different backgrounds, both socioeconomic, ethnic, gender, gender expression, sexuality, the whole gamut. We want to have it be reflective of the gaming world as we want it to be, not necessarily as it often is. And we want to encourage and we want to engage with as many different types of people and give people a common, a powerful common experience with each other. That and if someone wants to come into a place and frankly, has the courage to come into a place which frequently does not look like it's like it's for them. The gaming equivalent of the comic book shop, which is inhabited not, by nothing but your uh, you know, white men. Um, but they have the courage to go into that environment because they have an interest in the art. I think that they should. we, we have an obligation and they, uh, it, it only serves us well as a hobby to encourage those people as much as possible
0: you have described this event as a boutique LARP. The night in question is billed, I think, as a blockbuster LARP. What do those terms mean?
1: So when College of Wizardry came out, which was the Harry Potter themed-ish game, uh, it birthed a term called blockbuster LARP. And blockbuster LARP differentiated itself from most other LARPs by saying the conceit of a blockbuster LARP or the concept of blockbuster LARP is you pay more money. Mm -hmm. They rent out a Kick ass location like abandoned ranch full of crazy horror stuff in the middle of Texas or a giant castle in Poland. You pay a premium to do that, and they run instead of a regular campaign game, they run a single weekend long, week long, night long, really intense, high production value experience. So it was almost kind of like the Broadway play of LARPs, expensive. But very, very top of the art. And that became very popular. And then, kind of, a subgenre started developing called boutique games. And boutique games, well, blockbuster games tend to have 100 or more players. They tend to have very large scope and rent out entire hotels or something. A boutique game, there was one, uh, one of the more popular ones that's running for a couple of years is Nellie's by Night, which is run up in Montreal which is a vampire game where they rent out well, the bed and breakfast that the vampire diaries was filmed in somewhat. And it's, 30, 40 players I believe it's a modest ticket price it's under $100 it is not as high production value but it's a much more intimate experience but it's still a single one shot event that you show up for and it's kind of a destination and you show up and it's almost a little va- mini vacation that happens once per year or twice per year and that's a boutique game and that so Blockbuster was coined first And then this other version, which is kind of a mini blockbuster showed up and that started be called boutique games. And the fact that they are obviously of a higher quality, but far more intimate and personal, much like a boutique shop.
0: Okay. So this is above what I would likely get maybe at a large regional LARP, um, but maybe below what I would get at a blockbuster. Is that safe to say?
1: If you go to a large regional game, you're probably getting the same production value. The big thing that's the difference is is the style of a blockbuster okay. game with the custom character creation and the more groomed and curated experience, but it is done at a lesser scale. So I would say there's a lot of boutique games which don't have the same production value as, say, a large regional fantasy game, especially in somewhere like the UK or Germany. But they're taking the blockbuster style, but they're doing it at a smaller scale at a lower price point.
0: Okay. And is the character creation collaborative then, or do I just arrive and something is
1: handed to me? What it is, is that we're asking questions in the casting call. We're asking questions about what kind of character you want to play. And that is going to be the start of a conversation of, I have these roles, I have these storylines, these are the various groupings I'm working with. Let's fit you into one of these groups. And often uh, with the smaller games, you can afford to do this. This is one of the advantages of the boutique games is you can have someone. The writer goes up to you and says, this is my idea. Here's a couple paragraphs on it. What do you think?
0: Hmm. There aren't really a lot of predecessors for this. Is there uh, anyone else who's done something like this that people can look at kind of as a template if they're curious what mage LARPing may look like?
1: There's been a few mage LARPs. I've never seen any real details on them. They tend to be very abstract. There's also, of course, there's the mage Mizei Theater rules, but we're not going to be using those. This is not going to be a competitive rock, paper, scissors style system. There's a lot of really good systems, though. You might take a look at College of Wizardry. That's a Harry Potter game that they run in uh, Harry Potter Inspired. You know, it's, okay. it, it's not it, Perry Potter. They were one of the first really big blockbuster consent-based games, and they deal with magic and so forth, but it's very much more of the Potterverse sort of style. There's also, of course, been Enlightenment of Blood and our own game, The Night in Question, which is a vampire game, but very much worked in the same vogue of that you're collaborating to create a story inside the world of darkness with various characters of that setting.
0: This is going to be a a new chapter, it seems for Mage the Ascension as a game. And I look forward to seeing how it develops. If you're interested in more information, please go to jackalope-larp.com or look up jackalope-larp on Facebook. There's also a Mage Noir Facebook group and all of these items will be in our show notes.
1: And we're also on Twitter at at jackalope-larp. Awesome sauce.
0: And okay. hopefully, we can talk to you again as more information comes to light, and maybe we uh, have a final date in mind.
1: And hopefully, you'll come by and uh, play with
0: us. I'll
1: actually get you into a LARP.
0: I look forward to at least trying. And with that, Mates of the Podcast listeners, thank you for listening to our Mates of the Podcast mini And next is the first in a series of interviews I did with Onyx Path Publishing creators at PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia. At the beginning of December. The first one is a discussion with Rich Thomas, founder of Onyx Path Publishing, about how art influenced Mage and how Mage influenced its art, and a few other things. It was a very loud convention hall, and I've done what I can to clean it up. If it sounds like we're shouting and there's not a lot of background noise, that's because I was able to remove most of the background noise, but it still sounds like we're shouting. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Mage fans. I have the distinguished pleasure of talking with Rich Thomas of the Onyx Path, as well as the art director, I believe, for a number of years, and and countless other things that have gone into the game that we love. How you doing, Rich?
2: I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm, I'm filled with PAX love. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it is taking place in my native Philadelphia. PAX love, to me, I assume is a euphemism for heroin, but hopefully uh, it's not. I,
2: I don't know what the kids call it on the street these days. It gets up in the morning regardless. That's right. So what are the roles that you have
0: had in your RPG career as it pertains to producing White Wolf games?
2: Um, I mean, I started out illustrating. Okay. Right. And... Um, way back with White Wolf Magazine and did illustrations and pretty much within three or four issues, Stu Wick was saying, hey, what would you think about handling the other artists and getting other artists in here and doing the art direction for the whole magazine, which was something that I wanted to do. So it was a good fit and he didn't have to do it anymore. So he could put all of his efforts towards writing aspects of it, the editorial aspects of it, and the getting it out there and getting people to pick it up. It was a nice fit and did that for quite a while. Uh, he always said, yeah, come on, Rich, uh, we're, we're really big. You know, you'll know, you be the art director for the whole company. It'd be really awesome. And I was like, that'd be cool. Meanwhile, I'm going to keep my other you know, seven jobs I'm doing. <laughs> keep going. And it was, I think it was uh, just before Christmas of 91, he gave me a call and he said, Rich, it's uh, its time. I said, what are you talking about? Time for what? We could do it. We could we could bring you down. You could art direct the whole company. Vampire is huge. Like, Whoa, OK so i moved down in april 92 and basically became the art director for the company and as the company grew, the titling grew more baroque. Yeah. you know. So you know, Art director was like lead art director, head, executive art director, uh, yeah, head of production, uh, vice president of production and design. He, says, he just keeps like, and eventually creative director for White Wolf around the same time period as we merged with CCP.
0: What does a creative director do that maybe an art director would not? I'm not familiar with
2: the differences between <laughs> these terms, if anything. Well, in that particular instance, um, I got a call saying, hey, We really want to push a bunch of people into working on the MMO team, so we need to reconfigure how we're doing things with White Wolf as the role-playing game creator. Okay. Uh, So we'd like you to be creative director for the whole thing. And I was like, okay, what do you mean? Well, uh, both the the, the writing staff and the art, layout, design staff would all report to you. Okay, so you're doubling my job, is what you're saying.
0: Well, yeah. And I'm sure they doubled the pay along with
2: it. No? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know that happened. But no, but it was really a great opportunity because at, during that time period, I was able to greenlight um, maybe games that we might have had more trouble getting greenlit. So uh, Changing the Lost, Hunter the Visual First Editions, and um, Scion, okay. which, you know, subsequently we, we get to do, a, uh, on X-Path, we get to do a whole second edition of, which is been a throw.
0: And Scion is interesting because I think it's one of the most beautiful sets of books that came out in that era in terms of design quality and cover quality. And I mean, I'm a hobbyist bookbinder. So whenever I, uh, when when I first got them, I was very pleased with everything from the paper stock to how the covers were being done.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was really neat. I think, and this this is gonna definitely date me. I think I did a live journal post showing how I had done a sketch for the first Scion so cover the uh, the okay. one with um, with Eric Donner on Eric, the front of it, yeah, and, and Majoneer the the pistol, and I did I did that all up, and then I showed the sketches that the artist sent in, which were so good.
0: I just picture your version, not, not to shit talk your ability as an illustrator, right. but being like this stick figure with like fake biceps and this massive gun, and then uh, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll say probably a little more advanced than that, but nothing like what Comar did, and then when he actually handed in the photos, of course it's beautiful painting and then he did it twice more for the next books and then we could come back to him for second edition and get him to do the the cover for scion origin so it was a really nice really nice uh, thing but i think i think he's a brilliant artist and that's the best part of art directing is when you have an idea you kind of sketch it out or suggest it or or, you know write it up or whatever you do to the artist and then they deliver something that is so much better than what you thought (laughs) oh
0: yeah, kind of like as a storyteller where I'm like, oh, I have an idea on how I want to improve the technocracy. And then later I get a 250-page right. book, hopefully sometimes in 2010, that professional writers have worked on. I'm yes. like, this is a little bit bigger, better than what I anticipated. Yeah. So you did the initial illustration, so the artistry. I guess what kind of art assets go into an RPG? As in, someone has to do the... Like you have the font selection, you have the color palette that becomes dominant for the game. What the internal layout's going to look? What is the uh, all the things that require an artistic touch? Do you feel that go into oh. a r- modern RPG book? Well, so
2: sort of like I'll do I'll do a compare and contrast. Thing. So okay. we talked about Werewolf before, and Werewolf being a, a you know it was obviously it's it's about werewolves. It's big and violent. A lot of uh, a lot of the attention was that we would have borders that we'd break. Okay, so, so first we broke them with slash marks. Uh, but also we break them with the illustration. And so when you get to the flip book of Doom, Josh Timbrook's beautiful fight that goes through the entire uh, chapter, there's a lot of playing around with going off the edge because it's suggesting that that's what werewolves do. They break out, they unleash their rage. With Mage, what we wanted to do is come back into a much more classic feel with large moments where things were, where reality was shifting versus being broken or destroyed. So a lot of the illustrators I got at that at that time, I got specifically because they were doing kind of a rendering style, a little more with a little more with pencil and grayscale, but was, were very realistic, except to a little surreal part to it. Okay. And then went to my old standard, my old favorite John Cobb, who does the most twisted stuff, and he's got a very, very personal iconography, and that's kind of what we were going for. was artists who you, you really could identify, recognize immediately, who had their own look. But that played off the idea of modern magic.
0: And then when we went into the revised era, we had uh, Christopher Shy, who did, right. I believe, all of the tradition and convention books. Right. Is, is the styling, is, is the process for getting a cover fundamentally different for the interior art
2: assets? Uh, well, when you talk about getting illustrations, it is, it's obviously the, the big moment, right? Like, the, the cover is the big moment. We kind of always did a thing where it was first the cover, then there was the full pagers, then it was whatever the character choice, you know, that we... Call them splats, single figures, or whatever we did for those, and then the half pagers and the quarter pagers and stuff like that. Okay. So, like, that was where the the emphasis moments. So, the cover is the first big emphasis moment, obviously. A lot for a lot of our years, it was the only thing that was in color. So, we had to deal with color all of a sudden in the world of darkness. What is that like? For mage, and particularly working with Chris, who's who's a phenomenal artist, and a really nice guy. You know, we would describe what we were going for, and at that point, what we wanted was that was for revised. We were we wanted everything in the world of darkness to be recognizable as being in the world of darkness. So we didn't want, as opposed to, say, mage one when we had the rat guy uh, firing a submachine gun in the, the, the world's greatest storyteller screen. Yes we were far more going for, no, this should feel like our world, it should, I mean, almost we could describe it as like a little bit of a Blade Runner feel, a little dystopian. A lot of neon, a lot of LED lighting. and that was a perfect place for Chris to come in. Okay, so
0: So has the process of requisitioning art changed over time? Because the only glimpse I've gotten of this is, I look through some early Mage books and I'm like, this is not a Mage illustration. Someone got a vague idea of what Mage was and they did something kooky.
2: If you give artists incredibly detailed art notes mm-hmm. you run a really huge chance of just inhibiting all, all of their creativity as an art director i don't want them to be my puppets right i want them to bring what they've got i hired them okay. because i love their art i want them to bring that art into the specific thing so i don't want to feel like you know i've got my hand uh, let's be nice up their backs and, and manipulating the, the the art i want them to be saying well here's here's what we want run with it okay I sometimes they rhyme with it in odd places, but you know, probably what you saw wasn't so much a thing. It wasn't supposed to be for mage, but it somebody went off on a tangent, and we didn't have time to do anything else with okay.
0: it. And it's one of those things. It's early in a game line. We, right. we haven't quite figured out what is and isn't. Oh,
2: and, absolutely. Uh, some writers, the problem is, is that they're they're not visual thinkers. So you, you have to go to the art notes and go, yeah, there's, there's four full pages in this, uh, and each one of the things about the full pages, the art notes say, three people in a room talking. But it's a really important talk. But visually, it's four full pages that we now are watching people talk in, which is really not what compels people visually to think a book is really awesome. Find something in there. Eddie says now that whenever he needs to have a talking thing, he also has uh, somebody flipping over the table. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's become a violent talk. But, but that's, the, that. that's the kind of impact you want.
0: Now, we've talked about the art, the traditional uh, art pieces. What about the iconography, like choosing the sphere symbols or the discipline symbols right. or the tradition symbols?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, you know, for for Mage, that was a big... I wanted to, it to feel like, you know, obviously uh, magical uh, writing. And, and so I went for the real world and said... This is what they're using as symbology What people do alchemical notes. And I had a great reference book for that, and so I had a lot of them to pick from. And then I just tried to winnow down what would be appropriate to uh, one of the symbols. What was it being used for in alchemy? What did it really mean in the, in the mage world? And there should be some kind of relationship because, obviously, our world has picked up on some of that. That's why those symbols are being used for alchemy. Mm-hmm. So the idea really is that the mage is are the deeper knowledge, and we're just getting a a reflection or a shadow of that when we come up with, oh, so that's the symbol for tin. Well, really it's, you know, So
0: Yeah, and I guess the two lines that have most banged on the alchemical tradition are probably going to be Mage and Wraith, where all of the Legion symbols right. are a combination of elements and all of the tradition pardon me, all of the sphere symbols are, are process symbols. Like entropy right. is the is the putrefaction symbol yep. I believe or something like that.
2: The logic of it was hey this is really what this stuff means. The reality of it was I'm going through these books going, Oh that'd be cool. Yeah, <laughs> can, I, can I justify this to be this well, I think so
0: how do you go about then like cultivating a group of artists for a particular line like Ron Spencer for me is always associated right. with He's werewolf such a werewolf artist Yeah. yeah. so is that something where uh, people pitch art pieces to you or are you so wired into the art world that you go out and you, you seek people what does that process look like
2: in general, obviously, we have people we like to work with, and we like to work with them because we think, A, they're really, really good artists, and B, they're professional artists. So it's really tough. The greatest artists in the world, if they won't return your calls, well, you're not working with them. If you've been working with them, and all of a sudden, they, they stop answering everything, okay, so now we'll give you some leeway, and we'll try to get through and everything, but ultimately, the end result is if you don't deliver, you're not going to be someone we keep going back and back to because you're unreliable
0: for a book are the is the art production being done contemporaneously with the text or does the art only start after the text is done or something else
2: usually for a regular supplement it's it should be happening while a text is being edited so it's about the same amount of time we give all the artists for bigger projects or core books or new game lines entirely where you want to do some concept art to start with and you want to have ideas beforehand so that benefit both the writers and the art and the artists you might bring on. The, the process starts a lot earlier. We would actually create teams of white wolf that uh, one representative from the production department, along with the writers and the de- developers and the editors and, and whoever else was on the writing the text and creating the games, to, so that we had a visual person in there. And then a lot of times in the beginning, that was Josh Timbrook, and so he'd be sketching while everybody was talking. Then he'd show his sketches. That would inspire them to do to, to write stuff where he'd go, oh, we never even thought about that. I think the ma- the idea of the mask in Wraith came out of Josh's illustrations while they were talking about, you know, how, what should Wraith be like. And they then incorporate that into it. And so, you know, it's a collaborative process. Okay. But so there's
0: been flow that goes back yeah. and forth during this process. Oh, yeah. Interesting.
2: Then I would build up teams like for uh, when we first did Trinity, uh, tr- when we did Aeon, you know, had to have a whole team for that. That was our first time because we were building worlds at that point so like what what does the hover motorcycles look like and then of course exalted was uh, another one where we'd learn from the stuff we did in the, the trinity world building and that flowed a lot better and i had four separate concept artists working on that and we'd have weekly meetings with the, everybody would bring in and pin it on the wall and we'd all talk about it and so it was uh, yeah it was so there's a lot of serious groundwork that gets done that way
0: so whatever happened to uh, Joshua Gabriel Timbrook, probably one of the people most responsible for... I uh, produced the mage, the Ascension Tarot, probably right. most notably.
2: Josh is alive and well in Georgia, and he's got a, a job that he does that's it's pretty much you know non-art. He does a few things for himself uh, when he wants to, but he basically... I had him working for on, on V20 okay and that was wonderful the return I, I know we shared an office for a couple of years i mean we just uh, josh is a great guy but his work style and his interest in how he does this stuff isn't about i'm going to create these illustrations based on your your notes to me and there and i will get it done to you and then i will move on to the next thing he, he i think he loves every one of his drawings hmm. he, he feels very very connected to them and so He much prefers, here's a brief idea, go. And it's just gotten to the point where I think he just likes, I mean, he's he's much more just a fine artist, really.
0: So have you noticed any trends in how RPG art is being done? Like I look at V five and we have photographs in it. Right. And we never really had that in the old style. And I look at maybe uh, Chronicles of Darkness, where all the interior illustrations are seemingly standard black and white, but with a a sep- he- yeah, yeah, with like a sepia tone or something. Two tone, yeah, beneath toe-tone. it. Where old World of Darkness has stuck with uh, color for a lot of the newer right. stuff.
2: The direction people are coming in and where their inspirations are coming from have changed. Okay, so like when I started, you, know, you had fantasy book covers, you had album covers you got know, comic books and you'd have to find and buy them whereas with you know now if i want to do if i want to get inspired or something i mean oh, i can go to deviantart i can go to all different art outsource uh websites to see who's doing what and how, how they're doing it and we're, we are we're just bombarded with visuals i mean just look around this place look at all the signage and all these giant pieces of art that are all around, around. People couldn't do those back then. They, the, the material wasn't there to do it. You couldn't, most, uh, everybody except Watts, he couldn't afford it. And I think magic cards were a big part of that. I mean, that's a piece of art on every single card. And there's like, what, how many thousands of them now, right? So it's it's become a, a much bigger thing and a more polished thing. I think there's still room for idiosyncratic art like John Cobb's, because, okay. because it's, it is brilliant. But I don't know that it's the it's the exception these days to, to, the, to the more highly polished and more uh, it's it's also when you're doing art on a computer the the technical requirements a lot of that stuff is built in it's baked in you don't have to worry about ah my paints are drying out
0: it's not like you're doing this as a, as a fresco secco or anything and you're working with with egg white as it's drying or something
2: we would get fully painted things on board or on canvas sent to us in boxes so that we could get them photographed and everything like that. Mm. Now, send me a JPEG. Ba-dum-boom. We're good.
0: Was there any sort of review that happened as the editions went by where you had first edition for a book, you're like, we don't know what our baby's going to be. It's this wide right. open space, and then it starts narrowing down.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- you're absolutely right. We, we get a much better idea each time we do an edition for what the game's actually about and how, what we what, what we want to focus on. Okay. And sometimes, you you know, you, you go a little wilder. For the first edition, kind of stay with, like I said, you want to be appropriate, but you've got to give us some leeway because you don't know how people are going to react or what they're, they're going to be into. So when we first met up with CCP, they told us, well, you know, all of you should have one artist to do all of the line. So that way you'll have a consistent style.
0: And that way their hands can fall off. And, yeah.
2: Well, and I'm looking at am <laughs> going, why would you think that was good? Like, we want a, a variance within, a, within the same zone, but we want a variance so that a lot of different people can come at this and understand that it's for them. But they were thinking of it as a computer game when you do a concept. Once you start to render stuff, you've got to make it, it look like, so it's like, it makes total sense, but totally different needs as an art director.
0: Do you have any favorite artists that you've worked with over time? I put a call out to our Discord server to say, hey, I had a chance to talk to Rich Thomas and someone's right. like, whatever happened to Leaf Jones, whatever happened to Alex Shakeman and, oh, and, and I so think on. we're still
2: working with Alex. Okay. Yeah. Leaf took some time off, so we're uh, we're always happy to hear from him. My favorites, I mean you already mentioned Ron Spencer. I get these calls, hey Rich, how <laughs> you doing? And he it sounds like you'd expect them to, right? I was just splattering some more blood on this one, and I wondered <laughs> if it was gory enough. What do you think? You know, it's like, go, go, do what you <laughs> do, yeah. you crazy <laughs> bastard. But like, now he—he's a really, really great guy, Rich Ferguson, Richard Kane Ferguson. Also, I think uh, mostly we used him in Werewolf, and he was—he's another man, man. Uh, loved talking to Rich.
0: Speaking of that, uh, RK Post, I associate with Demon right. the Fallen. Is that one of those things where you try and find a signature artist with a new line, or is that just one of those things where maybe it spoke to you, or was that just a, a contract convenience or something?
2: Well, like I said, if if you say, so say we're looking at uh, or Tony Lizzi with uh Changeling, I'd guess. Right, right. And Tony was a he was a lucky thing for us. I mean, you know, he was just just on the cusp of uh, of being Tony, and uh, another and also really a sweet guy, just an absolutely wonderful guy. I tell the story about this kid hanging around our booth with this handmade sketchbook that he had. He wanted to show it to us. He wanted to show it to us, Gen Con. I finally said, okay, come around here, but come around the back where nobody can see us. And we sat down on the floor, and he handed me his sketchbook, and I was like, Who the hell are you? What is this? this is like, this is better art than, than, you know, we're seeing anywhere else in the business. And it's so personal, too. I mean, tony has got a very strong style. Mm-hmm. And I'm so proud of him because he had told me back in the day, I, I love doing RPG art, but I really want to illustrate children's books. I love to write them, too. That's what he's done. He made it happen. So
0: And then Changeling came around, and they were like, Kid, have we got a game for you? Uh, yeah, got okay. Changeling,
2: and then of course he did Planescape. And yep. blah, 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 blah. He
0: was a machine during the Planescape era.
2: Yeah. Just the, the yeah. fact
0: that that produced Tony DiTerlizzi and pretty well Monty Cook.
2: Um, yeah,
0: I, I feel like everyone kind of owes TSR a dollar if you've played either of those I, games at this it's point. A,
2: no, it's a big favorite. Ian Watson's yeah. favorite game. I mean, so many, so many really, really awesome people. So when, when we found an Onyx Path, and I started doing the 20th anniversary editions. Being able to reach back out to Chris Shai, to reach out to, to to Ron, and and then, hey, you guys want to work on this again? <laughs> Rich, I haven't talked to you for like 10 years. Yeah, I know. There's a whole MMO thing in the middle yeah. of that. You know? <laughs> we don't talk about that anymore. Yeah, Because, I mean, that's the thing. That's Again, like I say, uh, I think we are actually in better communication now because now I've got... Ron on Facebook or now I've got you know Chris uh, I see Chris is posting from his uh, studio on Facebook all the time so, so throw a little like in there or just a comment or something you know just,
0: we're, you're we're, still around
2: yeah. yeah which is a lot nicer than uh, radio silence because you know I'm, I'm working on some other project and I don't hire artists anymore you know yeah.
0: Has the, has the move of some games to using more photographic or rendered styles changed anything, or does Onyx Path plan on sticking kind of with more artistic or more illustrated style? I'm, apologies, I'm not quite sure what the appropriate parlance is.
2: Well, I mean, it it's really depends on what works. I think people forget that we did photographic stuff. We did hyper-realistic stuff. Dave Leary does amazingly hyper-realistic illustrations. It takes a... You know, nine hundred years to do a cover, but I mean, it, it, it's
0: the best phone booth you've ever seen. It's
2: amazing, and uh, and he's he's a wonderful artist. Again, very nice guy, and it's a lot of a lot of the stuff that's coming out now that's that's become more acceptable. I think it's because we're getting a more sophisticated visual palette when we look at things and go, oh, we, yeah, that'll work. Um, we still like to, I mean, you know we still like to do illustrations because you can play around with them so mm-hmm. much. Uh, but if and it, you're if dealing it's with the supernatural, right?
0: So you, to some extent you can't get photos of vampires. Right. They're remarkably shy in that regard Yeah, you know like, <laughs> get
2: the way they are werewolves. They don't stay still you always get blur Yeah, just uh, yeah. blur and then the slashing starts.
0: Yeah, exactly yeah. Um, Any other comments you have on the state of uh, RPG art or if someone is interested in being an illustrator or artist for onyx RPG. path How they should do so
2: the artist submission guidelines on the website are the perfect way to do it okay. uh, They're they're set up because that's exactly what we we want to use it goes, there's a process inside, um, usually winding up with Mike Cheney who does most of our art direction at this point. Every once in a while, if his schedule gets crazy, I'll step in and, and do a book or something. But it's like anything. It's a job. It's a real, you know, you, you have a process. You go through it, check things out, go through the sketches. We used to, back in the day, of course, we would get sketches over facts. So you come in every—and a lot of the guys still talk about how they love to come in every morning because I would come in and i go to the art facts and pull out these— 'Cause they were all the paper was all one strip. Yeah. I pull out this long strip of all these sketches of this amazing art coming out of this thing and lay it across tables and cut it up for each book. Yeah, you know, well this is from so and so and this is supposed to go here. And the rest of the gang, the writers and stuff, they'd all come in to check out what, what was being done. And it was fun. It was you know, it's a nice little present in the morning. Interesting. Well, thank you
0: so much for talking about the artistic process that have gone into the the games we love. Um, Are you comfortable talking about maybe some of the other things that Onyx Path is doing? Sure. I have heard it in bits and starts how onyx path came to be and now i know you being that the right. head of that is there a one paragraph explanation of what onyx path how it came to be
2: oh how it came to be yeah um yeah i've been thinking about this for for, for a long time
0: and when was this approximately
2: during the time that we were working on the uh, the late and lamented world of darkness mmo okay i started to think more seriously about wanting to do rpgs again but it wasn't until we did v20 and i sat down and i i actually did all the layout for v20 and I was like, this is what I love. Like, this is, this, this is good. This makes me feel, I'm, I get excited to go and do this thing in the morning, you know? And so, around that time, V20 was, was, was showing that people were really into it. They were talking about how they needed to adjust things. Uh, pardon me, who is the day here? CCP. Okay. It was They needed to put more focus on this, or that, or the other thing. And I had been down there in Atlanta, but my family was still up in, in, in Pennsylvania. And so I was commuting. So I see my family for one week out of every month. And I would, and then I go back down there and I'd work down there. And I told them I would do that for a certain amount of time. And so CCB said, well, look, we're not going to be releasing this for at least another year. And I said, I can't, I can't do another year, guys. I mean, I'm away, I've got three kids. My wife is a single mom for three quarters yeah. of the month. So I said, you know what, what else can I do and that's when we started to do some other things. And then they said, look, Rich, we're going to be doing a big downsize. Okay, most of the people you hired for White Wolf are going to be let go. I was like, uh, wow, that's like a major-ass fucking betrayal. Thank you. We don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. Uh, okay, sure. But now I don't. So I said, you can still be involved. You I was like, maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is it. And I talked to Mike Tinney, who was the, this, the president of, at that point, CCP North America, but he had been the president of White Wolf. And uh, I said, look, man, I think this is it. He's like, really? Because we talked in the past. He's like, if this is it, let me see what I could do to help you. Okay. And I was like, Mike Tidney, who went and said, "Guys, Rich is talking about leaving, but he wants to do. He wants to start his own tabletop RPG company. Would you be interested in him doing t- tabletop RPGs for the White Wolf IPs?" And they were. So I have Mike to thank for getting the most wonderful license in the world, or three of them, because three different three different things: mm-hmm. you know, World of Darkness. Chronicles now, and exalted. It's like wow. Plus, they were willing to sell me Scion and half of Scarlands and uh, Treaty Continuum. Did you have the capital to just straight out buy those things, or
0: was that a what, what kind of arrangement yeah. was that? As if
2: you're willing to share, uh, I bought those. Okay, those those were bought, and that was 2012. Next January, or just a few weeks from now, if you will, we'll go into our ninth year of doing business. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it's pretty cool.
0: Awesome. You have this thing, we have this new landscape where PDFs are probably outselling Dead Tree copies 10 to 1 or something like that.
2: We see it as as, as all sections. Like okay. So there's PDF sales, there's print-on-demand sales, there's traditionally printed books that now we're getting them into stores again. All of that is a section of what how we get stuff out to people. It's, okay. it's the various ways people are comfortable holding, absorbing, getting into uh, the, the role-playing games. So what works for you may not work for somebody else and that's fine. You know, we're going to try to service all that.
0: Okay. Do you have any experiments in the, in that regard that that uh, Onyx Path has been doing lately on maybe non traditional RPGs or non traditional formats to present the material in? So we have the phone editions that right. have come out. So
2: the phone would be the big one that I'd say is that that's that's one that uh, the drive through came to us and said, "Here's something we're going to be doing. Do you okay. want to be part of it?" So that sounds cool. What do we have to do to do it? So it's, it's actually a lot of work. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've uh, we've also looked at eBooks and and things like that. The biggest problem with those is. We're still not there to be able to present RPG books with the same level of polish that we do with a regular PDF, with a phone PDF, with, you know, regular printing. So there's, uh, like, charts. Gaming uses a lot of charts. Mm -hmm. Charts have to be created as a single block thing because you can't... There's no no software uh, part of it that says, this is what a chart is. Ebooks were never designed to do that because everything's got to be able to expand and flow and, you know, do this, Mm -hmm. so... Um, until we get there, we're not really going to be presenting the same sort of things but we did we did an ebook for Anarch's Unbound okay and it exists on drive-through. We don't sell a lot of that. But you tried, yeah, yeah. We, we at least proved we could.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what is your relationship with Drive Through RPG? I know that there's a, a, when I look well, at the names there, there's a it reminds me of some of the old White Wolf people. But I
2: totally want to just say that Eddie Webb owns both Onyx Path and Drive Through RPG, and uh, he's a completely Machiavellian mastermind behind the scenes. Because I've I've seen that actually people put those kind of. Uh, theories together. So, Drive RPG came out of the old days of White Wolf. Okay, it was a, a couple of people who wanted to. We saw how PDFs were going. Monty Cook uh, was a big, big, big uh, forerunner in that. He was one of the, 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 the leading the charge to put games into PDFs. And Drive Through basically said, "This is this is all working. We think we could do it." A, a, our own way more efficiently. We could, and so that was a big thing that Steve Wick was heavily involved with. And when CCP merged with White Wolf, Steve stepped out of the company, right into his own company, which was DriveThru. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's why you recognize the, the, the CEO of, okay. of DriveThru is Steve Wick. And and so as the acceptability of PDFs grew, so did they. Then they got hooked up with Lightning Source to do print-on-demand books, physical books, based on the PDF files. And that was like the key component. That was right about when I started OnyxPath. Okay. So I thought Path was going to be like just where we just put out PDFs. Yeah, Yeah. and also the PODs showed up. Oh, that's really really cool. And then within three months, we started thinking this whole Kickstartery thing. That sounds interesting. And we could we we've been put under a lot of pressure. I should say a lot of pressure, but a lot of fans wanted a deluxe version of the next Vampire twenty book. Well, we couldn't afford those covers. Those fancy leatherette, you know, foil stamp things, that's a lot of upfront. But with a Kickstarter.
0: If you know you're gonna be moving a thousand or five hundred or twelve hundred.
2: And we could tell everybody ahead of time this is what we're doing it for and and people get excited about it. And it was it was really an awesome experience. Obviously enough that we've Spun a lot of the way that we, we conceptualize how we're we're doing things with a Kickstarter first for the big books,
0: and even for some of the supplements that that seems to be the uh, the go to way. I'm We've
2: looking. done a few supplements that way. I, I I prefer to do it for the core books because I think it, it every format has its own pluses and minuses and okay. its own real, real advantages. And I think one of the advantages of Kickstarter is if you do a core book, you're now presenting this thing. You're getting immediate feedback on it and you can use the stretch goals to build that core book's landing zone, if you will. Okay. It's coming down, it's gonna be available, but there's also this novel, and there's also this, and there's also that. You're building
0: runway. Yeah. You're Um, like, I'm not just buying into this book and there's gonna be no system. When I buy that core book, I know I'm getting these five other supplements, maybe in a year or two, but they will be there for my table.
2: Yeah, and I think that's one of the magical things about, about Kickstarter really is, oh look, I didn't just back for a single book, I backed for all of these other things that go with it, that make the gaming experience so much more uh, full or fun or gives me more tools to do it with.
0: Is there anything interesting in terms of that business model on the horizon? Any shift away from Kickstarter? I know that you've started producing proper offset copies again. Right. um, And that's been fascinating to see.
2: Kickstarter has enabled us to do that. Okay. Okay, again, upfront costs, always a big thing. But with Kickstarter, we can say now, well, every backer is gonna get this. And then when they do the print run, we will simply have them do more and we will give them to our friends in studio too, who are already fulfilling the Kickstarter. They will then be able to then, because they, they are just they they get the stuff to distributors and to retailers. So, they've got it in their warehouse. We just print extra copies, and they can go. And that was the that was kind of the business model I was looking for, and why we weren't going back into we could have gone back at the stores right when expect, you know boom started, but we've been burned. Okay, a lot. White Wolf was 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 hammered a lot as as every. Uh, RPG Creator was, by the needs of the distributors versus the needs of the fan. I want to talk to the fans, I want to to know what our community wants, and good then, we can get it into distribution so you can get it, but I don't want them to to say, well, you have to stop now. Barnes & Noble, you missed a a deadline for a book shipment, they would cut their order by 50%. So now you, you thought you were making money, and now you're losing money.
0: Yeah, 500 copies of 50 bucks a piece is $25,000 if, if you're off either way. And, and
2: this is a small, small industry. Like, there are some big names. Like, you know, you can say Paizo, you can say uh, Watsi, Hasbro. But most of us are. It's, it's a very thin margins. There's not a lot of room to, like, just raise jack prices up to cover things. People are very resistant to change. So you've got to work within those things, so that means that what you're actually making off of all this to do more stuff with isn't that much. You're only very slowly building capital. Slim margins, they call it, right? So everything we can do to mitigate that, every time, like with Kickstarter, is great for that, to say, okay. You guys, we know that twelve hundred people really, really were into this enough to back it. All right, let's extrapolate from there. How many people we think would get would buy it if it was in a store? And okay. we'll print that many.
0: Has Changeling the Lost been doing acceptably so far? It has been doing really well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was super jazzed. I had never no interest in, Ch- in Changeling, but I did have interest in Onyx Path offset print books. Yep. So I have that, and one day I will read it. Excellent. But.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, in fact, uh, the Geist 2nd edition is at, mm-hmm. as at press now, and I think one of the things that's going to happen is as ge- more game books come out for each of the various you know, umbrella lines, if you will, um, they're gonna they're gonna excite each other back and forth. Yeah. So people see they can get guys. They yeah, okay. I also get changing and and back and forth. So.
0: Any chance of getting the Chronicles of Darkness second edition core book in offset? That's a tougher one.
2: A lot of people ask the same thing with like you know uh, any of the 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 the, the, uh, the first three right because we didn't we never did those yeah. in, in offset. Just to I, clarify, I, Vampire I, I, the Requiem, Mage right? the Awakening, and uh,
0: Werewolf the Forsaken.
2: Yep, exactly. Who've all received second editions. Yep, and and how to how to work that has been a big a big thing. We keep noodling back and forth on. Um, and it really requires us to have time in the schedule to do an experimental Kickstarter. Okay, and we're very interested in doing it. Like we want to do, we want to do like a Kickstarter that's maybe just a week. Okay, and for and not not for something really huge, just for something we think is really cool. That okay, if enough people think it's cool, let's make it, let's do it. But so far, we have so many books that so many people want to see Kickstarter, want to be involved in those Kickstarters, that we haven't had and had time. So that's why we opened up the second Kickstarter uh, account so that we could run. Yeah two simultaneously? If necessary. We're okay. still trying to avoid that. But like maybe a little overlap, whatever. But it does give us a lot more leeway to come. Like we could work on the, the one that's coming up while the other one is running. So that there's not as much of a gap between them. And that'll give us eventually time to be able to say, okay, what would you guys be interested if we did these four books in offset? Who would, you know, who would order? My theory is we would get quarter of each of the things ordered. Like I only want that one. I only want that one, I only want that one. And that that might make a harder print run, but Got it. we would know that ahead of time, and if it didn't work out, it didn't work out, so we mm-hmm. know. Well, we can't do those experiments until we get through like you know, all the ones that we're, we're still prepping for the next at least six months. So we have an audience that is highly
0: engaged, they've already bought the product by and, by and large. What is their best way, besides just buying extra
2: copies of Core <laughs> Rulebooks, to kind of support the community that you feel? Play. Get people playing. Mm-hmm. One person who's really, really dedicated to it can sit down at a table with four other people who don't know and convert them. So get out there and storytell people. Storytell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I mean, not everybody wants to storytell. But that's kind of, like we always said, it, it, it's, tough to, it's tough to do a supplement about that's storyteller based because only one 20. out of six people are gonna yeah, buy it. Yeah, 20 or 15%. But, but it's, let's, let's turn that around and make it a strength and say, you guys can evangelize in ways that nobody else can. Because we've all seen it. We've all sat down with that noob and seen the light come on in their eyes when they're role playing. And suddenly a whole new world of gaming possibility that they never believed. How, How could you? explain to somebody who only knows computer games where everything's controlled even if it doesn't seem that way you can say anything in what you don't you don't have to pick from three phrases yeah you, you don't have to worry about going out of bounds there isn't a no clip that you need to worry about yeah and yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a magical moment and and I think that's one of the real, the real strengths of our hobby to get people playing to the point where they get that moment then any, they won't go back.
0: Do you have any plans on providing support for storytellers or other people that are actually running the darn games?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing we've been doing, obviously, if you've been watching, is we've been we ramped up our Twitch streams okay. for actual play. So people now can see how the games play, which I think is another big thing about it. You don't know. What's this? How do I play this? What's supposed to happen here? We, we, we have tutorials. Uh, Matthew has been doing some great. How do you play Scion? How do you play the Mummy? He did a How Do You Play Mummy uh, for the Kickstarter stuff. And so those things are really important. And I'm try trying to get them in the way that people now get their their knowledge and their information. You know, we could do a pamphlet and, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe people get it, maybe they won't, but it, it, it'll just kind of fall into the same thing as any other product. Maybe you'll pick it up if it's sitting in a thing in a store. Maybe you'll order it off a drive-thru. Maybe you'll download it from our website. That's all good. But then there's, that's why we have jump starts. So yeah, almost the, every line at this point is getting has or is going to get a jump start,
0: which is the the basic rules, maybe a few sample uh, characters yep. and uh, a few plot hooks. Yeah, to see, start you with. jump
2: right in. Mm-hmm. Jump right in. It gives you it gives you an adventure. gives you the characters like you say, a simplified sort of like you know not all the details of the rule. Well,
0: awesome, Richard Thomas. Thank you so much for your time. Mage listeners, I have one extra segment with Rich Thomas on the origin of Mage Purple. So, where did it come from, boss?
2: Yeah, so we were uh, we were looking at you know, there's always a texture on the original five books, okay, and and, and more. But you know, the original five had very everything had a specific textural thing. The stained glass for changeling, the chains for wraith, and uh, Mage of course was this was purple cloth, purple cloth and gold foil stamp Mm -hmm. because it was majestic and magical, kind of go together to me. Mm -hmm. The purple is actually the little bridesmaid dress from my wedding where my, my little daughter was our bridesmaid. Hmm. And we folded that up and took a picture of that, scanned it on it, and then that's the folded cloth that's all the way through oh, there. Wow. Okay. And it's just one of those serendipitous things. My wife loves purple, so we were going with purple dresses. And I looked at it, and I'm like, I know I want to put foil stamp on this cover because we are getting into cover treatments that were funky. Going against that would be beautiful. And then if you look in the famous screen art, the uh, background, the, mm-hmm. what, the, what that looks like, it looks like the purple uh, is, is all like this atmospheric stuff back there in, in, the, in the other dimension. Oh, okay. So we tied it in. But it really came out of the fact that my daughter wore this little dress <laughs> that I thought it'd be really cool to put it in there.
0: Now, while we're talking about cover, if I may, one of the things distinctive about Mage is it was probably one of the first games that had a black or African-American character on the Absolutely. cover art. Where did that decision to make Dante be the lead character and be, and be black come from?
2: Well, Dante was a really cool character. Yeah. And he expressed what we wanted to express about Mage, but that mix of modern and magical uh, so well. Uh, Dante was also, if I recall correctly, he was played by our good friend Travis Williams, who for many years was one of the few uh, African-American role players that uh, we knew. Oh, okay. And he worked at White Wolf and was hilarious, a maniac, but he played that character. And Travis is ineffably cool. Okay, just by definition. He is one of the coolest people of any room. And in this case, so Dante was the coolest character who was in the playtesting for the original Mage. Hmm. I mean, just like, it just all fits. Mm. And Josh is like, well, he's, he's going to be the mage in the tarot. <laughs> okay. So
0: well, that's here useful. we go. Fine. So
2: it was, it, was, it was something where we just all went, yeah, that's the right guy.
0: And now you know the rest of the story. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mage to the Podcast. Subscribe and listen more at magetthepodcast.com. We're available on Stitcher, Relay.fm, iTunes, Spotify, and directly through com. If you have any thoughts, send us an email, made to the Podcast at gmail.com or at MageThePodcast on Twitter. In addition to that, we have a Hop and Discord server, and we've been spending some time getting some returning and new Mage fans up to speed on the M20 rules. If you have thoughts or questions, stop by and join the conversation there. Thank you, and bye.